0: I want to first thank the Lord for this privilege, this privilege I have to stand here and to crack open his scriptures. Uh, I never take that for granted uh, because, you know, it didn't have to be so, and so I'm grateful for that. Grateful for our pastors. Uh, You know, I'll go from left to right here, the Reverend Wright, right Reverend uh, Dr. Curtis Dunlap, and (laughs) he hates me for it, Uh, Pastor Nyron. AKA, I call him this in my heart, never to his face, but the wizard, you know, because he's so smart. But, uh, and uh, Pastor Tommy and Pastor, Pastor, uh, Pastor Larry, he's out of town. And then, of course, Pastor E, we're grateful that he gets a moment to get a rest uh, for this month. He works really tough. I'm just, you know, I wasn't going to say what I was going to say, but he, he works pretty hard. So it's uh, grateful for, it's a good thing for him to get away to rest and be with his family. So uh, keep him in prayer that the Lord would rejuvenate him. Last but not least, thank the Lord for my wife, Miss Kellyanne Jones, (laughs) the sweetest pie that a baker could make. That's right. My sweet flower sitting right there looking like, oh, I hate you. I know, baby. It's okay. I wanted to give um, a few updates, kind of as we uh, are looking and planting and working hard at planting this church. I see Pastor AJ right there, standing there with his baby. I know you probably didn't want that attention, but it's good to see you. Uh, but as we're, as we're hustling along, uh, we were able to sit back for a minute and kind of uh, take inventory, so to speak, of kind of some of the things that we've seen the Lord do. And uh, we ain't launched or nothing. We're just a small group trying to be faithful and, uh, and to see what the Lord has done. And uh, we, over the past two or three months, have touched seven to 800 people plus. The way we quantify that is we give away things, and so we give away water when it's really hot, or we'll give away coffee or or snacks in the morning for people's morning commute, uh, and we count those things that we've given away, uh, and, and we've touched. People have felt the touch of Restoration Church uh, seven to 800 people, and we're not even counting the things that uh, Pastor AJ and I are doing this month for August ambush. So even bringing that up, be praying for that. Uh, that's a month where we're basically blitzing this community twice a week, Tuesday and Thursdays. Uh, we're on the corners passing out coffee and snacks for people on their way to work, and it uh, gives us an opportunity for people to know who we are and for people to hear the gospel as well. And, and I'm going to tell you, one of the things that you do when you church plant you get a lot of no's and send-offs. And so, uh, you know, there are many people who were like, man, I'm so interested in what y'all doing. Sign me up. I'm ready to go. Then you call, email, you get nothing back. You, you go to a meeting, they don't show up. But then every now and then the Lord throws something your way. We were on the corner and someone saw us out. They didn't even stop and see us. They saw the logo uh, of, with our tablecloth. And the girl on her way to work Googled us read the website, and called me at 8.30 in the morning to say, I just passed you five minutes ago, and I saw what you guys are doing, and we're interested. We live in Germantown, and we're interested in seeing how we can work with you to see what we can do here. And so I say those things because you got to take inventory sometimes and thank the Lord for small things. But this is a big thing that I'm grateful from the Lord for, and I'm going I'm to move on, but this is important for me. Now, y'all who are Philadelphians, true blue Philadelphians, you've been here forever. You know, Germantown is like the Mecca of Islam in Philly. I mean, you know, probably second to West Philly. You know, all you see up in there is Muslims. Uh, one of the things that we've been praying about for a while is that the Lord would provide a person of peace based on, based on Luke chapter 10, that He would provide open doors not just for us to be friends, but to be able to share the gospel and for people to hear it. And uh, we were doing an outreach this past week and ran into a dude who's a drug dealer uh, who uh, was was a self-proclaimed Muslim. He says, I'm a Muslim. And he just started dumping out his life to us. I mean, like literally just started telling us about how much he can't stand his girlfriend and how much, you know, life is tough and all sorts of stuff. And I'm just listening to him, man. And, And so I said, let's get together and eat. Now, I just knew this dude was going to send me off. I just, you know, I just kind of said, he said, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. I promise. And we got together at McDonald's on Shelton and Germantown. Somebody like, that ain't no dinner. (laughs) We got together on Shelton (laughs) at Germantown. And uh, listen, he and his friend in Vernon Park, those of y'all who are from Mount Airy, you know, Germantown, you know, Vernon Park. That's where a lot of stuff be going on at. And uh, they sat in the park with us on Friday and listened to the gospel Without any fights or without any arguments, and it, it perked them in their heart, and they heard it, and and they they're, they're chewing on the word of Christ, and and uh, and the guy, truthfully, I pulled up on a Germantown Ave to go see the dude, and, and he pulls up, and you know, everybody standing out there mugging you like, who are you? And somebody said, who is he? And I said, oh shucks, you know what's going on here? And the man said, that's my pastor. I just met the guy a, a week ago. So the point I'm making. This isn't a, uh, a you know, you know I, I, I honor the Lord for answering the prayers, and, and I just want to see what the Lord's going to do with that, uh, and so be praying for us as we continue to try to engage the different types of people in our area, so with that being said, open up your Bibles to um, Psalm 8, and just because Pastor E is on vacation doesn't mean you are, so you know you can stand up for this text. <laughs> Psalm chapter 8, when you're there, say, I'm there. there. If you're looking, say, still looking. looking. All right, I'll give you a second. We're going to begin reading. It's on the screen as well. Uh, We'll read along together. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens And out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Turn to the person next to you and help me announce this topic. Say, neighbor we're going to learn what looking up, what looking up shows, you. shows you. Turn to the other person on the other side and say, neighbor, neighbor. What, does up show you? what does looking up show you? Let's take our seats. <laughs> Father, we thank you for <coughs> this time that you've given us to enter into your word, uh, Lord, and uh, we don't take it lightly uh, that we can stand here and be able to proclaim it loudly on amplifiers and microphones and speakers. And for the most part, uh, aside from quote unquote haters in our lives, we live in relative peace. And, uh, and we don't take that lightly uh, and we, th- we thank you for it and, and even now we pray and we desire that the peace we experience that others would experience as well. And so we're mindful of our brothers and sisters that are persecuted today under the hand of ISIS and we pray for their strengthening But now, Lord God, as we enter into this moment, this preaching moment, Lord, where we examine what you're saying to your people from this text, I pray and ask, Father, that you would let me decrease so that you can increase and that you would speak not only to your people but speak to my heart also. That you would challenge me in areas, that you would challenge us all. And uh, at the end of the day, we would do what you're calling us to do on this day and in this text. We love you so much. It's in your Son, Jesus' name, we pray. And the church says, Amen. The earth has some stunning places, doesn't it? As one travels the world, it is nearly impossible to come away with it without feeling a deep sense of awe and beauty and wonder at what you will see. It's quite difficult to stand along the precipice of Niagara Falls and to see the water cascading down in a thunderous roar and to feel the mist hit your face and not walk away and say, Wow. Or to ski on the Alps and not be taken aback by these snow-covered figures in our land and not be taken aback by the size and the enormity of these things called mountains and not say, wow. It's nearly impossible to stand in the redwood forest and to see the sun peering through these tower trees and not be thrown away by the size and how many people it would take you to surround one of those trees. There is a wonderful display of the artistry when we look at the various type of fish and birds that fly or swim in the waters or the skies in our world and not be taken away and say, man, it's something beautiful about this. There is an attractiveness to these things, and if left alone long enough, uh, you, you will experience a further amplification of the ontological question of, is there someone out there greater than me? And if so, why am I here? Now, I know we might be sophisticated, and we might have scientific explanation for what we see, but the heart and what it tells us in those moments, logic and reason cannot argue what the heart is telling you. In them there is something that loudly speaks, but softly whispers in your ear as the wind saying, look up. There is someone or something greater here. And it is for this reason that children can experience such things and say, mama, daddy, who made this? Mommy, daddy, why is this here and who created this? I know we don't ask those questions like that anymore because we got science to tell us and we may feel like we've evolved beyond this type of thinking, but it's the very reason why civilizations that are much smarter than you created categories of gods and and idols that they worshiped because innate in every person is something that God has given us and that is the question mark of what is out there beyond the vastness of what I see. This particular psalm is a creation psalm. This is a psalm where they will spend time honoring God and singing about how great he is, not out of a vacuum, but but out of what they see around them. They will look up in the sky and wonder, man, what kind of vast God will make this? They will see the animals that they have been placed over and say, what kind of God could make this? And this particular psalm that is penned by David but inspired by the Holy Ghost is tailored to show us this, that looking up can help you see the great God who has carefully crafted all and how He cares for us and shows us our significance to Him. Let me see if I can say that again. He says, He says, I'm saying that, that's, that, that David is saying and the Holy Spirit is speaking to us today that, that looking up will show us how great God is, the one who has carefully crafted all that you see. It will show you that he cares for you, and it will show you how he demonstrates your significance to him. Let's bounce into the first point. First thing we see, and I think the Lord is saying to us today, it is this, that the greatness of God shines through his creation how do I get it? Let's go to the text. He says, O Lord, our Lord. Now, looking at the text, it would seem like David is being a bit redundant, as if God didn't hear him when he said his name the first time. But David is actually doing something that in order for you to grasp, you got to step into his world. He's saying, O Yahweh, our Adonai. This name Yahweh is the name that God would use to reveal himself in Exodus chapter 3. Now those of you who may have never ever read Exodus chapter 3, I assure you, you know the story because you've seen DreamWorks' Prince of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 3, God reveals himself to Moses and he says, Moses, I've overheard and heard the cries of my people who have been struggling for 400 years and now I'm making the decision, Moses, to set them free. And Moses says, that's legit. He says, now who are you going to use? God says, Moses, I'm going to take you And you're going to go back to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and you're going to tell him to let your people go. Moses says, I can't speak. How are you going to use me? He says, I'm going to use you. I'm going to send your brother with you. And you're going to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. Now, like any human being that just meets a stranger for the first time, the question out of your mouth is, what is your name? If you're from my neck of the woods, you might say what your name is. God would say, here is my name, Ahye, Asher, Ahye, which literally means I am being what I am being. Let's pause there for a moment. God is saying that, that, that I am the very definition of existence, yes. that I'm going to be what I am. In fact, I'm so big you can't even take a name and tag on to me because in your mind you only know time. But I am the beginning and the end. I never need a creator. I never needed anyone to birth me or to name me, but I have created the very time in which you're bound to. He says, the one who is the definition of existence. He says, who shall I say sent me? He says, say that I am being who I am being has sent you. God says, in case that name is a little bit too long, I'll give you a nickname. Call me Yahweh, which means I am who I am. So he says, the God who has revealed himself, listen, didn't have to do it. He didn't have to step into time and say nothing to nobody because he was God all by himself. He wasn't lonely. He didn't need you. He didn't need me. But rather, he was the God who remained nameless and said, I'm going to step in and reveal myself to man. And he says, man will know me not just by my name, but who I am and what I do. He says, I am being what I am being. But then he says, so Yahweh, the one who is transcendent, who's eminent, because he's revealed himself to us in the name Yahweh, he says, our Adonai. We don't say words like that anymore because we're not ancient Hebrew folk, but our Adonai would mean our master. Our Lord, our leader. In essence, what they're singing to God in worship is Yahweh, the God who is ginormous and cannot be summed up in a sentence, is our master. Stop right there for a second. You need to be reminded that God doesn't play by your fiddle. That God does not play by the whim of your imagination. God is God and he has jurisdiction over you. Whether you acknowledge it or not, God is the God who sits over you. And as Brandon said today, your breath is in his hands. He says, my God, our God, oh Yahweh, the God of everything, the one who exists apart from anybody or anything else, our master. He says, how majestic is is your name. Now, we don't ever use words like majesty unless we're singing a song. No one says your hair is majestic. I mean, you might try to be cute and be like, boo, you majestic, you know. <laughs> this is what he's saying. We don't get the significance of a name uh, because we name people weird names. He's saying how majestic is your name. Name in his context, whenever you named someone something, it had meaning. We name kids because names are cute. When I was growing up, I met some people with some interesting names, and if this is your name in this room, do not get offended and trick on me. But I met some people whose name was Shelafonte. No meaning whatsoever. Met some people named Bonquisha. No meaning to that name. Met some people named Laquisha. Not Laquisha, Laquisha. Ain't no meaning to that name. We name people because these names seem to be cute and will look good with your baby. But in David's world, when he talked about a name, name meant personhood. So he's in essence saying how majestic or strong or splendid or mighty Are you the person? He's saying, I never shook your hand before God. I can't say I felt your hand before. I I cannot say I saw your face. All I got is your name. And your name tells me a lot about your person. And he says, how majestic or splendid or powerful are you in all the earth? In other words, he's saying that, that there is nobody that compares to you as a person. He says, I can search the world and nobody will be like you. Stop for a second. We need to be reminded that the God who calls us, the God we serve, there is nobody that matches him in the world. And some of us look for people to be him in our lives, and we wonder why we still feel empty after dealing with those people, because nobody can be matched to God. You need to understand that this God who is unmatched controls your employer's hand. Somebody's praying for a job today and wondering if the Lord will open up that door. When you're sitting before that guy, you need to understand that the God that you serve holds his heart in his hand and can do with it anything he wants to because there is nobody like him in all the earth. This is what he's saying here. He's saying, Oh, Lord, oh, Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic or powerful, strong is your name in all the earth, (coughs) You have set your glory above the heavens. He's saying the heavens are vast. Heaven is not here in this context. It's not referring to God's house. It's not referring to when you tell your kids where does God live and you say heaven. Heaven, in this sense, is is the sky. It's plain old simple the sky. He says you've taken your glory, your weight, who you are, And you've set it above the creation in which you've made, which implies that the creation in which you made has a lot of information about the one who made it. Let me let me let me see if I can spin it this way. The river that runs along the eastern part of the city is called the Delaware River, right? That river was here long before the Declaration of Independence was written and signed. It It was there long before the Native Americans that trailed these streets or this area was there. It was there before them. It will be there after we're all dead, and it will be there for the next generations. What does that say? That says that the God who made it is eternal. And that there is nothing temporary about him, that he lasts, and you can see the eternality of, or seeming like, of of features in the world and know that God is eternal. Let me me see if I can take it another way. You look up in the sky, and you see how vast it is. We miss this because we're in the middle of a city where there are buildings and things to block the sky, but when you go out in the country and see how vast the sky is, he says, you have allowed yourself to tell us things about you. Through your creation. So the creation is speaking, but then he says something that's really interesting. He says, Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. It's interesting here because he's saying, You've ordained or you've set this to be so that out of the mouth of babies and infants, you make them say stuff. Now, this is poetry here, but think of how foolish that sounds. Kids, first off, when they're babies, can't say nothing other than scream. Infants can barely walk. And David is saying, out of the mouth of these things, you've you've allowed strength to come from it. In his context, he saw kids a little bit different from how we see kids. He he saw kids as as insignificant because they could not take care of themselves. And so unlike us who spends a lot of money for kids, kids were the poorest of all society because they, they could not take care of themselves. And even in other parts of the world, even today, kids are still the poorest in other societies. He's saying, you have decided to allow things that are insignificant to say a lot of significant things about you. Somewhere along the line, we as Christians have bought into something that is not in the Bible, where we think that we have to be a certain level or a certain uh, caliber or know a lot of stuff or have read a lot of books or have done a lot of things in order for you to be fit for God to use you. But understand this, God masters in using those who look like they are unusable. Let me, let me draw your attention to Moses. Moses walks up and he sees the burning bush and God speaks to Moses from that bush, you know the story, and he says, I cannot speak because I stutter. And God says, but I'm going to use you nonetheless. I I I wish you saw Samuel and how grieved he was when Saul got rejected as king and he cried for days and wondering what is going to happen with this kingdom that you've rejected the king. And God says, I got another king. And all of a sudden, you see Samuel going to the property line of Jesse. I can see him walking in the door. And knowing in his heart that God has raised up a king in this man's house. He's in this man's house, and Eliab comes forward. And Eliab, strapping gentleman, looks like God can use him, and people will follow him because he got a little bit of muscle and because his hair is laid a certain way. And so, surely, God, you're going to use Eliab. And, And God says something interesting. He says, I've passed him over. Then comes Abinadad. Abinadad walks in and, 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 and Samuel says, surely it's, it, it's him. It's him. I, I see it. He doesn't exactly look like his big brother, but eh, it'll do. And God says, I've passed him over too. And then a whole trail of brothers come through and get rejected the same way. So much so that Samuel is saying, oh, I'm a little discouraged here. I thought I was going to find a king. Jesse, Jesse, where's your other kids? Do you have any more? And Jesse says, I got one. He's out in the field bring them in and David walks into the room and I can see the smell of the beautiful aroma that would have been in the room leave when crap walks in the door because he's been standing out tending sheep and walking in mud and crap is crusted under his feet and he probably had to wipe his hand just to shake the prophet's hand and, and God says take the oil that's my man here's the point I'm making God is able to take some nothings and make them something for his glory God could care less about what you think you brought to the table or what you think you've experienced or what you think you know. He will take the one who knows little because he uses the insignificant. Let me take it a step further. I wish we had some insignificant Christians in the church today. We like to look at the guy who stands on the corner saying, turn to Jesus or burn, and they're doing something we're not doing. They're telling people about what God has done, but we sometimes are too significant in our own eyes that we won't become insignificant to be used for the sake of the gospel. I wish there were some people who said, I will be foolish for this gospel. I wish there were some people who said, I will look like a nobody for this message that I proclaim. I wish there were some people who said, I will be insignificant. Who is the one that God uses? The one who says, if you can use anything, Lord, you can use me. Take my hands and take my feet and touch my heart and speak through me. God is looking for Christians that say, I don't got it all together. I don't know all this stuff, but I'll speak if you tell me to. God maximizes at using people that are insignificant. Wish you could have seen this boy growing up on the south side of Chicago, reading three grade levels under his peers, praying that he would get accepted into the worst high school in the city. And everything I've seen after this point has nothing to do with anything that I ever brought to the table, but had everything to do with the fact that God can use mess. I love it when Pastor E wrote his book and he said, I was just a dude from DC and I never thought anyone would buy my books. God tends to use people that say I am available to be used. Is there anybody here that'll say to God, I'm available to be used? It's interesting here because you see two things converging. You see in verse 1, you see creation is speaking. Creation is saying, hey, there's a God, pay attention to him. But then he's saying, insignificant people are speaking. Why? He says, because of your foes, to steal or to stop or to shut up the enemy and the avenger. Who are are the enemies and the avengers of God? They're the unbeliever. Now, that's not politically correct. That's not fun to hear or say. That's that's those of us who, who, who will not submit to God through Jesus Christ. We are enemies of him. Oh, that sounds not good because I thought God loved me and he absolutely loves you. But, but when you do not submit your life to Christ, you are an enemy to him. And he says, I've allowed two things to tell you about me. So when you stand before him one day, as we all will, Scripture says it's appointed for every man to die, then comes judgment. When you stand before him, you'll never say, God, I never knew, because he's going to say, creation spoke about me. But then every time you trolled through Facebook and saw that sign on there that said, Jesus is Lord, turn and repent, and laughed and scrolled up past it. Every time you saw that person you called an idiot on the corner telling you about Jesus, and you passed him, that was a warning. Every time you saw your coworker tell you to repent and turn to Christ, and you said, no, that was a warning. Every time you sat in church Sunday after Sunday, Sunday after Sunday, hearing the gospel penetrate your heart, and you say, no, that's another warning. He'll say, you won't have excuse because two things have testified about me, creation and insignificant people. So God allows himself to be shown through creation. Here's my second point. Looking up shows us that the greatness of God reveals the mystery of his care. He says in verse 2, 3, I'm sorry. He says, when I look up at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place. The next three words is what is man? Last night, I was driving out of no man land, New Jersey. I'm talking about the part of New Jersey where you thought you was in Alabama. I'm talking about the part of New Jersey where you lose phone reception even if you got Verizon. The part of New Jersey that'll make a black person nervous. (laughs) And as I'm driving out of New Jersey, I'm in a hurry to get the heck out of Dodge. I'm like, I I got to get back out of here. I need to see some light because it's pitch black. I mean, I'm hearing noises that I have never heard in my life. (laughs) I'm hearing something called tree frogs. I ain't never heard no tree frog in my life. I'm seeing toads bouncing on the ground. I'm like, what in Jesus' name? Them used to be cockroaches. But now I see roa—I see toad. okay, whatever. And as we're hustling out, my wife stops me. We turn this corner and there's a field to the left and there's an empty field on the right. And we are blown away to the point where we almost stop the car because we look up and we saw something that we don't see all the time. We looked up and we saw the dark canopy covering the earth. We saw the moon seated right in the middle and clouds nestled around it as if it was covering up to sleep. And my wife said to me, Watson, it's amazing that in the city we don't get to see these things because it gives you perspective. in the city where there are buildings that block the sky and we don't know what a star looks like, we miss the beauty of this poetic prose here. David is saying, when I step out on my balcony, when I look up in the sky, and he uses anthropomorphic name, language here for a God who has no form, he says, he says, and I see the handiworks of your fingers, indicating intentionality. I see how you've laid the stars in place and the sky, you've, you've, you, you've rolled it out a certain way, and I, I see the sun, I see the moon. If you're in Alaska, I see the beautiful northern lights through the sky, and all it does to me, it makes me say, what the heck is man that you even think of me? David's saying, when I see that this is vast, this is, is massive, it's, it's bigger than me, it says that there is someone bigger than that, and it scares the crap out of me because it makes me say, who am I? See, we sing songs like, show me your glory, let your presence show up in here, and we sing songs like that, but, but when God shows up and gives you a glimpse, you are left with the point of, whoa, I'm a man of unclean lips. Why would you even have any dealings with me? See, Some of us need to be brought back to the realization that we are nothing, that that, that although we think we big and run something, in the scheme of things, the Bible says you are a grasshopper. Get the language here. A grasshopper in comparison to the God who sits enthroned in heaven can step and smash you. He says, when I think of this vast creation that you made, I'm left with the question, what is man? Why do you care about me? What is man that you're mindful of us? The language here is you you have care and concern that goes beyond what we might even call the mundane. I look at this and I say it's a bunch of us in this world. Why do you care about me? This idea that Yahweh, a God who is boundless, is transcendent, in other words, he sits so high, can be mindful of you. That he knows you so well that he understands your hurt. That he knows you and is so mindful of you that he understands your pain. That he is so mindful and caring of you that he understands where you are today. What is man that you're mindful of him? I survey all you made and I can't understand why you give a rip about me. Think about this. There are people who have done you wrong and you don't give a rip about them now. But man who has slapped him in the face since the beginning of time, what is that that you care about us? He presents this mystery. I can't understand why you care. I mean, we, and we don't really fully, fully get it. I mean, we know what he does, and we know how he shows the love, but, but we don't fully understand why he even gives a care about us. Because really, really truthfully, he could wipe us out and say, let it be another earth. Yes. Forget these fools. Let it be another earth and just recreate them, take sin out of the equation, and he could do it. But he's mindful. Yes. Second thing looking up will show us that this great God shows us our significance to him. Let's look at the text. He says, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Heavenly beings here, as you would imagine, are angels. He says, you've made man a little bit lower than them. Interesting, because you see angels ministering to people. In the scriptures, you see angels protecting people and fighting for people. Get get, get the imagery and how deep that is. You've you've used something that's a little higher than us to serve us. He says, you've made us a little bit lower than the heavenly beings, and you've crowned us with glory and honor. That's the picture of a coronation, as if a person kneels before someone with authority, and a crown is put on his head. He says, you've crowned us with authority. That's called the image of God. There is nothing in this created order that has what we have. Everything else lives, and if you look at Genesis 1, they were created. It says, let this be, and it was. Let this come, and let it come. Let this produce after its kind, and it produces after its own kind. But then you notice a pause in the literature. He says, but let us make man. He says, he stoops down, and he goes into the dirt, and he makes man with his hands and breathes his breath into him and says, this and the woman who will come in a few seconds have my image which says that our significance as people comes from God. Let me break this down a little different. This is the reason why God gets upset when we mistreat folk. Because when we mistreat someone else, this is what we're saying to God. You have given me more of your image and you have given them less. And God says, I spread my stuff out like peanut butter. You got the same amount of image as he got. This is the reason why he says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. On, it's the idea that God has made each and every individual and he has made them significant in his eyes. He says, he says you've crowned him with glory and honor. You have shown how you've done this by giving him dominion over the works of your hands. Now you know you wouldn't give nobody no dominion over the works of your hands let you create something that took some time and some energy and see if you're going to let somebody else say, yeah, I did that. He says, you created everything, and then you gave it to something else that you created. He says, you've given us dominion over the works of your hands. That's why we're able to be creative and enjoy making stuff and, and building things because you've given us dominion over it. You've put all things under his feet. What are these things? He starts to outline them. He says, the sheep, verse 7, and the oxen. These are domesticated animals. He says, the the beasts of the field, those are animals that is wise for you not to touch, lions, tigers, and bears. (laughs) You've given us dominion over the birds of the heavens and the fish and the sea and whatever passes under or in the paths of the sea. In other words, he's saying, looking and interpreting Genesis 1 and 2, That man in a sense was a pinnacle of creation. That he made all of these things and then he took us with intentionality and said under me take care of all this. But now it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at verses 5 and 8 and see problems there. Because it seems like the things that we have dominion over based on 5 and 6. Oftentimes, exercise dominion over us. Let me, let me see if I can spin it this way. We're experiencing the largest outbreak of Ebola in history. I mean, you may have just heard about the dude who came across the sea, you know, with the little balloon on him and all that stuff, but, but we're experiencing, my wife gave me a statistic that said over the last, what, 20 years, there have been 1,000 outbreaks or 1,000 cases of Ebola, and in the last two months, there have been 1,500. Get that, that means in the last two months, we have seen more outbreaks of Ebola than in the last 20 years. Wow. It's so fast and so rapid, they don't even know how to contain it. Am I saying this to incite fear? No. What I'm simply saying is that things that we were given dominion over sometimes seem to have dominion over us. That, that's how the same shore that you look at and enjoy every summer can come on the land and wipe out 100,000 people in less than a day. That's how the sky that you fly in, in a plane, and the plane that you made can, can turn on you and gravity can push it to the ground. That, that's, that's how animals that, that can seem like they're domesticated and nice, a cat can bite you, and the saliva that it has in its mouth is so poisonous that if you don't get it checked out, you could die. That's how a dog that you love and own and you have power over can maul you to death. The point I'm making is you look at verse 5 and 6, It seems like this is a lie. But can I tell you what's really going on here? This particular psalm is not merely about us. It's not merely even fully about what God has done for us. But it's setting us up to understand a story that's bigger than this. It's setting us up to understand the story of redemption. Because at the beginning of time, God said to man, man, I've made all of this and set you over it, man and woman. Have all of this and enjoy it, but just don't eat that fruit. Isn't it funny how we could see all of this freedom, but that one thing that we can't touch we always want? Some of us are in mess now because God has given us boundaries to say no to, and we are people who like to toe the boundary to see how far or close can I get to it before I break it. Man sees that boundary and says, God, I know you said it, and he's been deceived by Satan, and he says, I'm going to take and eat. And the Scripture says that he takes and eats, and as a result of it, God comes down and he casts three curses. He says to the woman, I will greatly increase your pain in childbirth, which is now saying he's increasing pain in the earth now. It's saying that where there wasn't pain, or heavy pain at least, there's now going to be some severe pain in this world. He says to the man, For the rest of your life, you will hustle and never enjoy what you do. And the ground that you work on, you're gonna return to it. In other words, saying, Now death is here. But then he says something that's beautiful. He says to the serpent, But this woman is gonna have a child one day. And this child's gonna defeat you, Satan. This is coming from a conference call that God had. When man made the decision to sin, and sin and death entered into this world and jacked up all of creation. That's the reason why Paul says the earth is groaning because people are dying and we still have cancer and we still can, can suffer heinous things and ISIS can wipe out 100 people in a day and, and sickness can take us out and natural catastrophes can happen because creation is groaning. He says, he says God says, what am I going to do to fix this? And in this conference call with Jesus And his friend, Justice, Justice stands up out of his seat and says, God, I'll stand up and lay the hammer and show them who's boss. But Jesus stands up out of his seat really quickly and he says, Justice, take a seat for a moment. I'll be the one to take the hammer for him. And Jesus says to Justice, to fix this is not going to be education. To fix this is not going to be money. To fix this is not going to be people doing philanthropical things. But to fix this means just as you wait on the cross. And so Jesus would come after the one who wrote this psalm. And David will come and he would write. And, and there will be a prophet that will say from David there will come one. And the Hebrew writer will say that God will one day subject himself less than the angels for a minute. That's, that's, that's Jesus putting on flesh. Jesus didn't put on flesh because he was cold, you know. He put on flesh so he can understand our weakness. He put on flesh so he can understand what tempts us to evil. He put on our flesh so he can understand our pain. And Jesus would carry that flesh to the cross, and he'd see his old friend Justice, and he would shake Justice's hand and say, Justice, it's good to meet you again. Let me trade places and sit on the cross with you. And Jesus takes the nails in his hands, and he takes the nails in his feet, and sin is placed on his back, the sin of the whole world, you know. And justice said, I told you I'd get what needed to be done. And Jesus says, justice, join me. Let God pour out his wrath on me right now. Let God pour what was due to you who, who kept doing what you wanted to do. Let, it, let him pour it on me. Let God pour out what was due for you who would not acknowledge him. He says, let, let that be poured out on me. And he hung there. And the scripture says that he died but he didn't stay dead. He was raised from the dead. That's why Hebrews 2 would say that he was given a place of glory and honor. That's why Jesus would say, Father, give me the glory that I once had with you before I got here. Jesus would suffer on the cross and he would die in our place. But then the scriptures would say that everything was placed under his feet. There's a problem there because If we look in the world that we live in, it doesn't seem like nothing submitted under his feet. It seems like, in fact, he's lost control. But the text says everything was placed under his subjection. But I love it because it goes further. And it says, but we'll see everything under his subjection one day. Jesus will return. And this messed up world that we see will be dealt with. Nobody will die from cancer again. No baby will be beheaded again. Nobody will suffer in pain again. Nobody will die from natural catastrophe again because Jesus will come back and defeat victory. And I love how David wraps this Psalm up. He says, oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name. How powerful is your name. How righteous is your name. How big is your name. How strong is your name. You're strong enough to carry my sin. Anybody know you had a lot of sin? If you really are honest about yourself, you got a lot of sin right now. He displayed his power when he carried your sin to the cross. You're strong enough to carry me. You're strong enough to provide for me. You're strong enough to never leave me. He says, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Looking up will show us how a great God can care for you and show you how significant you are. And the greatest example of that display was his son's death, burial, and resurrection. Not because he was born on a Friday night, but for you, but for me. All heads are bowed and all eyes are closed.